Well, good morning, church. Welcome to our morning teaching time, Keeping Your Joy, the Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. And I said before how Rini and I were talking about this, and we've really made an effort to kind of gather ourselves, even though we're kind of in cyberspace right now for a little while anyway, we've made the attempt to gather ourselves at our regular service times instead of just watching it you know, at our convenience, so that we don't have a bunch of habits that we have to undo when we get back together. So we're trying to keep our Lord's Day and our midweek around the scheduled time so that other things get built in around them rather than having to redo our, our worship schedule. So it's just something to think about. This morning, living life worthy of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, hope you have a Bible, 27 to 30. Paul writes and says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not just any faith, not just any religious expression that they might feel sincerely about, it's the gospel. It has to have the content of the gospel. Paul's in prison. He writes this from prison. So he says they should be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There were opponents to the gospel then. There are surely many opponents to the gospel now. In this country as well, though in a different shape, a different form. Then Paul says, this is a clear sign to them, that's the opponents, a clear sign to them of their destruction. So there'll be, there'll be judgment. Paul's not afraid to talk about that. But of your salvation, a sign of their judgment, your salvation, and that from God, both the judgment and the salvation will come from God. 29. For it has been granted to you. So this is a gift granted by God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. So yes, I believe in Jesus. I get forgiveness of sins. But also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul's in prison. They aren't. But you can see what the conflict brought to Paul. It's cost him his prison. Eventually it'll cost him his execution. And he says, you're engaged in the same struggle. You, you, you're not in prison. You might not feel it the same way. But we're, we're in this together, the very same battle. It's a fascinating text. I mean, Paul may live... Paul may be executed. He thinks he might come and visit these people again, Lord willing, he says in verse 25 and 26, maybe. But he's not, he's not certain about that. And it's almost as though in that 27th verse, he, he lifts his finger and he says to them, only remember this. See the first word in verse 27? Only. Here's the one thing that you have to give your attention to. So, Paul may come to them, he may not. He may live, he may die. Speculation about Paul's future or theirs 
That's not the point. There's only one point, and Paul uses that first word of verse 27. It's sort of his way of separating the important from the unimportant, the important from the merely speculative. Only, okay, whatever else you're thinking about, here's what I want you to zero in on. This is the only thing you need to remember. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's all they have to worry about. That's, that's, that's where he wants their attention placed. Like Paul, they may live, they may die. They don't know that they won't suffer for their faith. In fact, he says it's been granted to them, he says, to suffer. But right now they live. Right now they're alive. And this is where they must shine the light of the gospel. They can't be any good to God where they aren't. They need to be good for God where they are. And Paul is clear that they must not only believe the gospel, they must manifest a lifestyle worthy of the gospel. A lifestyle worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the way he puts it in verse 27. Not just believe, manifest a lifestyle worthy of the gospel of Christ. So here's what today's text is about. Today's text, the rest of it, tells us how to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ and why it matters that they do so. So point number one, and this is one of those long Horbin points, I'm sorry. If you're a regular CDB or you're used to this by now. Point number one, a life worthy of the gospel is made obvious only by its unbending determination to stand for the faith of the gospel in the face of all else. I know that's a lot. I get it in 27 and the first part of 28, where he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there, that's the goal we're going to be looking at in this whole teaching. That's the only thing they need to be focused on. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in any way by your opponents. Look at, look at some, of these, some of these words. Um, standing firm, striving side by side, not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's the wording. It's, it's the, the words that Paul chooses. They write to Paul because they're concerned about how he is standing up. That's what, that's what causes them to write. He's been going through a lot. He's not a really young man. He's in prison. Uh, they know because he told them he's being slandered by other uh, evangelists, if you will, who are trying to hurt him, he says. We know he's suffering greatly for his faith. He talks about his chains being because of Christ. How long is Paul going to last? Is he going to make it? So they want to know, how is Paul standing up under all of this? And the funny thing is, Paul doesn't really tell them very much in reply. 
He tells them how the gospel is doing, that it's reached all sorts of people in the Roman prison system. He tells them that it's reached Caesar's household. The last verse in this whole letter states that. But then really what he does is he kind of turns the tables. They're asking, Paul, how are you standing up? How are you doing? And he tells them that they need to be concerned not with how he is standing, but with how they are going to stand for the faith of the gospel. In fact, Paul tells them that this is the only thing they need to apply their minds, energies, their wills, efforts. This is the only thing they need to give attention to. Don't worry about me. How are you standing? Make sure you stand. Only this one thing. Make sure you live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It tells us something. If you think it through, it tells us something about the nature of how we will grow in Christ. You see, there's a couple of different things here. When you start your Christian life, the only thing you need to do really well is accept the gospel. Understand and accept the gospel of grace. There aren't 10 ways to be saved. There's just one way to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was the one that said that. You have to just accept the gospel. That's how you start the Christian life. But we're not talking about starting the Christian life here. We're talking about, we're talking about living a life, the rest of your life, forward. How do you live the rest of your life Worthy of the gospel of Christ. How, how do you continue, not start, continue in the Christian life? Paul says the thing needed is to stand firm in the face of the gospel. And you kind of sense the movement here. Accepting the gospel, that's one thing. Now to grow, standing firm ongoingly in the gospel. And even those words, words like standing firm, they're very descriptive. Imagine you're going to go on a ride at a new amusement park and you've never been on the ride before. You have no idea what to expect. You're ushered into a dark room with kind of a rubbery floor. There's railings there and there's an announcement there that you're to hold on. Make sure you stand firm. There'll be images flashing all over the screen. There'll be special effects. The thing will rock and tilt. And there you are, and you know you're going to have to hold on. Buckle up. It's going to be a rough ride. That's what it means when someone says, you're going to have to really stand firm here. When Paul tells these believers they don't need to worry about him, but what they must do is devote their mental and physical and spiritual energy to standing firm, he's telling them something about what growth in Christ is going to be like in this world. I mean, the whole context of our text, it, it rings with clues. I mean, look at the words. Standing firm, 27. Striving, side by side, 27. Not frightened, 28. Opponents, 28. Suffer for his sake, 29. Engaged in the same conflict, 30. I mean, all of those terms, they say, brace up. There's great joy here, there's great wonder here, but it's not light, it's not breezy. It takes a full-blooded effort to stand firm. And just, just this side note, 
Oh, there's such a need to stop and consider, all of us, consider the price that has already been paid and invested in the gospel that you and I freely accepted. I don't even mean just the purchase, I mean, this is the main thing, of course, not even just the purchase of death by God the Son in the atonement, but, but the bold confession of so many others who have died to preserve New Testament Christianity. Paul, the writer of this letter, he's beheaded. Martin Luther, executed. William Tyndale, burned at the stake. I mean, true, the gospel is free, but it, it doesn't just float down from heaven into your lap. I mean, there's a, it's like a baton has been passed on to you. Are you really going to sell out just because your friends don't warm up to your commitment to Christ? Really? Are you going to quit because, you know, your professor mocks your beliefs after all that's been invested? It would be easy for Christians then and now, I guess, to read these words in our text today. And we would all assume, okay, there are some people who would really have to pay the price. Pastor Don, you listed some names. Some people would have to pay the price for ministry for Jesus. People like apostles and pastors and missionaries. I mean, obviously, these people are called to make sacrifices. And, and Paul's point, of course, is to remind these people, he writes to these Christians in this church at Philippi, that he's not the only one engaged. They're in, engaged in the same conflict. He says, you're engaged in the same one I'm involved in. They are no less likely than he to need to heed the call to stand firm because they may have to be prepared to sacrifice a lot to follow Christ in this fallen world. Trials come. I mean, enemies of the cross, they always abound. The, where we live right now in Canada, the surrounding culture hates, hates the words and claims of Christ on your life. Oh, they like love one another and the golden rule. Everybody likes that. But I mean the full-blooded claim of Christ. This world hates that. Are you ready for that? Are you braced for that? That's, Paul says, only this. This is the one thing you're going to have to give your attention to. Okay, point number two. You can't stand firm if you stand alone. I get that in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing, they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, but then these words, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So if Paul pleads for them in that first point to stand firm with a life worthy of the gospel, now he's going to tell them how to do that. Here's a part of what it takes. What does a life standing firm look like? Well, one thing for sure, Paul says, it doesn't exist independently. You can't stand firm by yourself. Standing firm is an impossibility apart from the 
fellowship, the striving side by side in the body of Christ. There's a side by sideness to standing firm for the gospel of Christ. Boldness for Christ is fed and grown in a community of people striving together toward the same goal. We all know how important the church is, how it's going to be good to get back together whenever we can do that. We all know that. Uh, But I've been so startled to rediscover. I knew it, but didn't really know it. So it takes, learning is fairly easy. Relearning takes a bit of humility to just see the way the scriptures link all the ingredients of the Christian life, not just to the person of Jesus Christ, my relationship with Jesus. That's the way we think of it. They don't just relate it to my relationship with Jesus. They link it to my fellowship with the body of Christ. I was looking at the Apostle John. Look how he talks about this in in verses 1 to 3, and then he'll do it again in verse 7. First look at 1 John 1, 1 to 3. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So the idea, of course, is, John says, we didn't just adopt some kind of mystic philosophy. You know, there was a teaching floating around. We liked it. We latched onto it. He's talking about, he's talking about touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. And the life was manifested. That's the incarnation. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. Okay, this is John 1.1. 1, 1 and was manifested to us. It's when Jesus came in the flesh. So, so he says, our, our faith in Christ isn't based on a philosophy, it's based on history. It's based on stuff that happened. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim, so here's the gospel proclamation, we proclaim also to you. Why? What's the end game here in presenting Christ to people? So that, okay, so now he's going to tell us. There's the connector. So that you two may have fellowship with us. Isn't that interesting? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 7. You know these very familiar words, and usually all we see in them is this promise of forgiveness. But there's more than that there. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have Here's the first thing, the first result. We have fellowship with one another. Isn't that interesting? And secondly, which we usually put first, don't we? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so what he does is he puts, he puts together forgiveness, which he lists second, forgiveness with fellowship with one another. We're proclaiming the gospel to you. Why, John? So that you'll have fellowship with us and you'll get your sins forgiven. But, but you can't just take that without this. You can't just say, I'm forgiven, me and Jesus, without being committed to the fellowship aspect because they come together. You can't separate them. Somehow this has become almost foreign to our North American, Canadian, evangelical thinking. We've we've just kind of neatly separated fellowship with the church from 
the cleansing of our sins by the blood of Jesus. Like I can just take that one if I want and not the other. Not crazy about organized church, but I just love Jesus. But, but, but see, this church here, this is Jesus' bride. You really can't be close to Jesus without being close to his bride. He loves his bride. That's why there are a couple of verses that are really hard to understand. I want to just look at them quickly because they fit right in here in the teaching. This is why, because, because the gospel produces not just forgiveness of sins, but it links us up in a fellowship with other believers. Not just in the invisible body of Christ out there. I mean a, a church with an address, with people in it, believers, where you're linked up in fellowship. If you get this concept, you start to understand why other verses say what they say. Let me give you, a, let me give you an example of two that a lot of people have a hard time with. The first one is 1 Corinthians 5, 5, and I'll explain the context of these in just a second. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you are to, to deliver this man to Satan. Wow. For the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. If he repents, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord when Jesus comes again. 1 Timothy 1, 20. There's a, there's a list of people that, that uh, Paul's disappointed with among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have, look at this, same thing, handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So both these passages deal with individuals being uh, disciplined, excluded from the fellowship of the church, immorality, blaspheming, and so it's interesting to me that in Paul's mind, when these people are like excommunicated, banned from fellowship in the church until they repent. It's interesting to me that Paul sees that as turning them over to Satan. How can that be? It's not some superstitious curse. This isn't Paul prancing around a fire at night chanting some kind of curse. No, this is, this is a very accurate picture of what happens to people who are separated, excluded from the fellowship of the church. They're vulnerable. They're somehow separated from the protective grace of Jesus when they're separated from the church. That's how important the church is. That's why John says forgiveness and church, they go together. You can't just take one. Now, Paul's point in our Philippians text is actually the positive side of the same truth. People can stand. People can strive. They can win. They can stand up to opposition. They can stand up to whatever might shake them up. They can live lives worthy of the gospel. Yes, they can. Even weak, ordinary people like we. We can. But, but, you strive side by side. You're tightly knit to brothers and sisters in a local church. So, so we don't just pray, we pray together. We don't just study, we study together. We don't just serve, we serve together. We don't just worship, we worship together. It's in that togetherness that we can stand, withstand, live lives worthy of the gospel in a very, very pressurized, countercultural environment. Now we come to the heart and soul of this text although we're almost done the teaching. Point number three. The time God's grace 
is displayed most richly in our lives. I want to identify that, and I want to talk about why it matters so much. I see this in 28, 29, and 30. Look what he says. People standing together, he says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. They will have opponents. You have opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, okay, it's one thing, but also suffer for his sake. And, and both of these things have been granted, not just one of them. It's not, we don't just get granted forgiveness of sins. We get granted uh, standing up and suffering for Christ. Persecution, ridicule, we, that's part of the package. That comes as surely as forgiveness comes. You can't just take the forgiveness. If you crave for Christ to be more exalted, more deeply in your life, then pray over those verses because they extend a deeper brand of faith than is being hustled in our user-friendly marketed church. Paul describes God's life in Christ being pressed into the deepest levels of our knowing. If, as Paul said of himself, Christ is equally exalted either by Paul's life or his death. That's 1, 20 and 21. If that's true, Christ will be exalted by his life or by his death. And if, as verse 29 states, suffering for Christ is this badge of honor, a gift granted that builds the sufferer and glorifies Christ more than any other miracle, then 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 victory for the cause of Christ generally in this world must be something deeper than just, just the undoing of my trial, the deliverance of my need, the reversal of my trying circumstances. There must be, and I'm not saying those things don't happen. Praise God for the times they do. But there must be, there has to be another kind of triumph if we're going to make sense of what Paul is saying in this text. And if you read the text carefully, right from 27 to 30, you will find that Paul, strikingly, for all his talk about praying for them with joy and they love him, but Paul never once promises these Christians that they will experience deliverance from their opponents or their suffering any more than he's guaranteed deliverance from his opponents and his suffering in prison. What they are promised isn't just deliverance, it's witness, it's testimony, it's the lifting up of Christ. He promises that their faithful standing for the gospel, living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, it'll be a, it'll be a sign of truth, both to Enemies and friends of the gospel. I get that in 28 and 29. They won't, you're not frightened by anything by your opponents. It's a clear sign to them. That's the opponents. The clear sign of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God. For, 
It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ. So this isn't something the devil's doing. He doesn't do anything for the sake of Christ. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So here is the sign of truth. Our lives are to point to in our times of countercultural persecution for our devotion to Christ. People should see what is worth treasuring. That's what they should see in my life, in your life. They should see what, what's worth living for. Sometimes they'll see that by seeing what's worth suffering for, maybe even what's worth dying for. So this will pronounce judgment on those who turn from Christ to nonsense, to material trivia. And it will give courage to those who need deeper strength in standing up in their own trial for Christ. So either way, the truth about the magnificence of Christ will be demonstrated. This is Paul's whole point. Our lives really only count to the degree that they demonstrate Christ needs to be treasured above all. Only, 27, only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You don't have to focus on 15 things. There, only that. Only that. We must show them Christ is all in all. Actually, Paul says, Paul says the same thing in slightly different wording. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, he says, we, this is the Christians in the church at Corinth, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There's two groups here. To the one perishing, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, the saved, a fragrance from life to life. So our greatest victory, contrary to thousands of false voices, isn't always going to be our deliverance, though it may at times be granted very mercifully and very miraculously. But our greatest victory isn't linked to our always being delivered. It's in our witness. If we are supernaturally delivered from all of our trials, then here's what the enemies of Christ will see. They will see the power of God. But if we are enabled to courageously be mocked and shunned and suffer for following Christ, and we still follow Christ, then people will see not just the power of our Lord, they will see the desirability of our Lord. They'll see that he's treasure. So Paul doesn't promise these Philippian Christians unconditionally their deliverance any more than he can promise them his deliverance. And he says that's not the main thing. That's what Paul says. That's not what this passage is about. Our calling is to be clear signs. That's the word he uses. He uses it. He uses it in verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is, there it is. This is a clear sign. To them of their destruction 
but of your salvation and that from God. So, so the calling is to be a sign. The calling is to live a life worthy of the gospel. Only this, he says. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ so that people will see we, we treasure Christ more than life itself. We treasure Christ more than our own desires. This is the calling of Christ. And it is, it is the greatest gift that he gives to us and the world around us. It's enough for us that he is glorified. It's enough that we point to him as prized above all else. Such witnesses display the truth of his beauty as long as they live and to die will be gain on top of it. God bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray, church. What a big text. Pulls our hearts in directions they don't naturally go. Takes our thinking and, and prunes some false misconceptions, prunes them out of it and focuses them on what's important and what should be singular in our hearts and in our lives. Oh, how we love your word. We treasure it. May we be a church that strives together for the gospel, loving sinners, but never compromising on any point of truth proclaimed by Jesus Christ our Lord. So we don't just glibly say we believe in Jesus. We believe what Jesus says, what he says about sin, what he says about ourselves, what he says about redemption, what he says about his coming, what he said about his resurrection. We don't just admire Jesus. We adhere to Jesus. Help us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Let Jesus be glorified in Cedarview Community Church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.